The message from God's Word is from 1 Samuel chapter 4. If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. As the book of Judges comes to a close, this is kind of the setting of Samuel. The very last verse in the book of Judges says, Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Then in 1 Samuel 3, which we studied the last time we gathered together in the evening, we read that the Word of God was rare in those days. Either by the prophets or by teaching of the priests. Remember, Eli and his family were corrupt. The Word of God was rare in those days. And with the decline of God's Word, we also saw a corresponding decline in worship. And with the moral failures of the priestly family of Eli, we saw a corresponding hypocrisy of the Israelites, the people of Israel. Israel had fallen into great darkness. That's the context leading up to chapter 4. And yet, we also see a reason for hope. We also see a reason for great hope. My daughter writes short stories and books, and what we've noticed is that the master storyteller is God. Everything you like about a good work of literature, you probably see it in Scripture somewhere. There's always a reason for hope. And we see in the first three chapters of 1 Samuel, the family of Elkanah and his wife Hannah, they're faithful to God. They're faithful to worship. God had closed Hannah's womb and she prayed and God gave her a son. And this son was named Samuel. And he was dedicated to the service of God at a young age. And God spoke to Samuel in chapter 3 and said that the house of Eli would be put down and destroyed, would be punished Specifically, that God would do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. That brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Please remain seated. I'll have you stand at the very end of this passage in honor of God's holy word, but remain seated at this time. But hear God's word, 1 Samuel chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, All Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. 
And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. There was a very great slaughter, for thirty thousand foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn, with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the upcry, outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was ninety-eight years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go with you, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat By the side of the gate, his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Would you please stand for these last four verses? This is God's holy word. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth. For her pains came upon her, and about the time of her death, the women attending her said, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel. For the ark of God has been captured. Amen. Please be seated. Let us go once again to the Lord in prayer. Precious Holy Spirit, grant us wisdom. Enliven our hearts and our minds to understand your word. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, be honored and glorified in the preaching of your word. And may we receive it with joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in chapter 3, we saw that Samuel had become a key instrument in the plan of redemption for the nation of Israel at this time. Samuel, the little boy, was of more consequence, it seems, than the whole family of Eli and his two sons. But from chapters 4 to chapter 7, Samuel is nowhere to be seen. Why is that? 
Because what Samuel had been told in chapter 3 is coming to pass. Just as God promised. God's justice upon Eli and his house and actually on all of Israel is taking place. And rather than Samuel being in the center of the stage, we see the ark of God and God himself taking center stage. The glory of the Lord departs is the title of the sermon. We'll talk about why has the Lord done this? The question of the elders. Why? Why has the Lord done this to us? We'll talk about the object of their faith. Was it in God? Or was it in the means of grace for them? The Ark of the Covenant? And then I really want to ask the third question. Did God really lose? Is that what happened? So we'll talk about why the Lord did this. We'll talk about their faith. Was it in God or not? And we'll also ask if God lost. So why has the Lord done it? Why? I think that's a valid question. In verse 3, it says the people came back to the camp and the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? The Philistines were people who were never fully conquered in the time of Joshua. And they still oppressed the people of Israel. Hence the war. And after 4,000 men died the very first time they fought... The elders asked, why? Why has the Lord defeated us? This is a right question. They got the question right. All things come ultimately from God. God and His plan. I put some uh, specific parts of the confession of faith on the back of your bulletin. They talk about God's providence. They reflect the Scripture's teaching of God's providence that everything that happens, happens according to to the will of God. All things from the greatest to the least happen according to God's plan because He's wise and He's holy. To the praise of His glory and of His wisdom and His power, His justice, His goodness and His mercy. So they're asking the, white, the right question. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't God messing something up or God not paying attention to His people. They're asking God, why did He do this? Why? Well, we know from chapter 3 why. It's discipline. He's disciplining the house of Eli. He's disciplining the people of Israel. Does God still discipline in this way today? I think you know the answer. Individually, we know that clearly the Bible teaches that He will send discipline by means of hardship, all kinds of ways to strengthen us, but at the time, it does not feel good at all. Hebrews chapter 12. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, or be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves." and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. 
And he goes on to talk about the discipline of God. But he also ties this into the kingdom of God. You see, individuals are disciplined, but so are whole nations, so are whole peoples, as we saw in this passage. So what is exactly the discipline of God? Well, generally, it's hardship in your life. Hardship that God uses to push you back to God. It could be the result of your own sin, although this is not direct discipline, perhaps. Let's say that you you cheat on your wife and she leaves you. Well, this might be a form of discipline, but it's actually just a natural consequence of your actions. You see... But still, it's hardship. Let's say that you are struggling with a particular sin or you have a secret sin that you will not repent of and you find yourself in the midst of some sort of difficulty. This could actually be the discipline of the Lord pulling you back to Himself. God oftentimes leaves His children, His own children, for a season in the midst of many temptations to the corruption of their own hearts. He may let you fall into deeper sin to feel the weight of your terrible sin, to chastise you for your sin, so that you discover the hidden strength and corruption of your sin, that your hearts might be humbled and that you might be raised to a more close and constant dependence for God. So what's happening here is God is disciplining not only Eli, but the whole nation. They had left God's law. They had left God. That's why this had happened. But you see, the answer to their question, they came up with the wrong thing entirely. Their answer was what? Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. Let's go get our secret kryptonite. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant into the, into the camp that it can save us from our enemies. And we read in the, previously that the Ark of the Covenant certainly was part of the worship of Israel. It was located in the Holy of Holies. It was a wooden box about four feet wide, four feet long and about two feet wide. It was covered completely in gold. On top of it, it had two cherubim with their arms extended all across it. It had little rings on the sides for poles to go through so that it could be carried without touching it because no one was allowed to touch it. Inside the ark, we had Aaron's rod that budded. We had the Law of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, written by God's finger. And we had some manna from the wilderness wanderings. And on top of it, the lid was called the mercy seat. And it was thought not that God lived in the box, but that God who dwelt in heaven would rest His feet from His throne, kind of spiritually. It would, it would envision that His feet would be down, resting on top of the Ark of the Covenant. His throne was in the heavens. It was an extension of His throne there in the Holy of Holies, so they thought. And often His presence seemed to suggest that very thing. So the golden cherubim showed the rule of His heavenly kingdom was actually there on earth as well. The Ten Commandments showed that God's revelation to man was actually with His people. He had given them. He had revealed to them His law. He had shown them what is required of them and how they will know Him. The manna obviously reflects the life-sustaining sustenance of God for His people. He cares for their needs every day. Remember, the manna came every day for 40 years in the wilderness. Every day He cared for them. The budded rod 
Remember, this is because the jealous priests challenged Aaron. And they said, put your rods in the tent, and when we pull the rods out the next morning, whichever rod has budded, that's the rod of the person I've chosen. It reflects God's choice for high priest, the one who would represent His people. The application of the Ark of the Covenant itself is all that it points to Jesus Christ. All of those things point to Jesus. It's wonderful that He is the glory of God the Father, not an ark. He's the King who rules the earth, that's served by angels like the cherubim. He's the only perfect man who fulfilled the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and kept the covenant with God. He's the bread of life who sustains His people every day. He's the only choice of God to be the perfect high priest, the mediator between God and man. So the whole point was the ark should point the people of God to God, to Himself, to the worship of God. It was to represent the fullness of God found in Jesus, their Redeemer. Yet rather than seeing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost in the Ark of the Covenant or behind the Ark of the Covenant or a represented by the Ark of the Covenant, they saw something more like a four-leaf clover or a rabbit's foot or some other lucky charm that they could pull out. They had the ultimate weapon. They'd, in their minds, kind of back God into a corner too because by bringing the Ark of the Covenant, they knew that if they were defeated, well, this probably means God is also defeated. And certainly He's not going to let that happen, so we got Him. God must act, or else he will have lost the battle as well. Now, it wasn't completely foolish, their initial thoughts not totally foolish, because the Ark of the Covenant had been present powerfully at times of great victory in the history of the people of Israel. Again, they didn't understand exactly what the Ark represented, obviously. But the thought that the ark could actually be something that God would use to represent His presence was right. From the very beginning, when they made the ark, in Numbers chapter 10, Moses, whenever they would set out, Moses would say, Rise up, Lord, may your enemies be scattered. Remember in Joshua chapter 3 and 4, when they crossed the Jordan, the priest went down into the Jordan River carrying the ark, and the water stopped. There's a, a Red Sea, part two. They just walked through on dry ground. You remember the Battle of Jericho? They marched around the city with the ark. But what you're forgetting, probably, is that the ark was to point the people to worship, even in these situations, right before the Battle of Jericho, right after they crossed the Jordan River, what did they do? They basically had a worship service. They rededicated themselves to God. All the men were circumcised once again. God called all of His people back to Himself, and the ark was at the center of that. It was always to bring light to God's power and His grace. It had no power in itself. It was just a box, a golden box with some wonderful things in it that pointed to the grace and power of God. It was kind of an old covenant means of grace, if you will, whereby God would administer grace and comfort His people. It was part of worship. So, 
Do you think we have ever treated anything in worship like the Israelites treat the ark in this particular scenario? Have you ever done this? Let's consider this for a moment. Think of, so we'll start maybe with some of the more obvious examples. Think of certain churches that will have symbols or pictures of Jesus or statues that are supposed to be special and holy. They'll kiss them, they'll touch them, they'll bow to them. Rings that are kissed. Remember as a child, the uh, Catholic priest, he wasn't a priest, he was a bishop, showed up in Kuwait City where we lived. It was a big thing. This high-ranking person from the Catholic Church showed up. I was 17. I had never seen anyone like that before. With all of the, the stuff he was wearing, the giant hat, you know, the ornate robes, and he had the biggest ring on his finger I have ever seen in my life. It was a gigantic Super Bowl-sized ring. And everyone who came up to him bowed down and kissed his ring. And it seemed even for me who knew nothing... So idolatrous. Why would they do that? Well, obviously they think these things have a special significance or power. They're replacing God with the things that should, in their view, point them to God. Although we would never do anything like that. How about us, though? Have you ever wondered why you say in Jesus' name? Do you say in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer because you know that's what you're supposed to do and if you don't say it, it the prayer might not work? Don't do that. What a horrible thing. When you say in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer, what you're doing is identifying with the cause of Christ. You're saying in the name of Jesus, for everything He stands for, may this prayer be answered. But it's not a magic formula. It's not something you just say. I remember uh, maybe 20 years ago, there was a prayer of Jabez. Does anyone else remember the prayer of Jabez? So the idea was if you prayed this particular prayer over and over every day, the blessing would come upon your life. It really was like the ultimate prayer. The magic formula. I remember also that for many years, small country churches would have revival tent meetings. Think about that. Does God have to come down and start revival because you put a tent up and some chairs and bring in an evangelist? Is that how revival starts? Or it can even be as simple as just things that we should do and do every day. Do you read your Bible because you want to know the living God, the personal God who saved you? Or do you feel like if you don't do this thing, then your day's just going to go bad? You see, there's a big difference. One wants to know the living God. One uses God like a tool for a good day. Same with fasting and prayer. Do you think you can manipulate and orchestrate God's favor? Or make God beholden to do what you ask in some way? Dr. Dale Davis says, When the church stops confessing, Thou art worthy, and begins chanting, Thou art 
useful, then you know the ark has been captured again. See yourself in the ark, in the Israelites' treatment of the ark. We often do these things without thinking, and God wants us to worship Him well. What's the key? The key is that your worship can never be a means to an end. Your worship is about God. You worship because you love your Maker, your Savior. Worship is an end in itself. We worship God because He is worthy. We want to commune with our Father. We read the Word of God because it shows us the Son. It shows us the Holy Spirit and the Father. We pray because He's the only one who will answer. We receive the sacraments because God commands and desires to show His grace in our hearts. It's all personal. The personal triune God. That's who we worship. Okay, point three. Did God lose? Did God really lose here? Well, that's the great irony, isn't it? God... They thought they had backed him into a corner and he had to win the battle or he would be losing. And he wasn't going to lose. They cheer. They have kind of a little pep rally when they hear the ark or see the ark coming in. They think they've won the battle. The irony is that although they thought God had lost, God was actually accomplishing exactly what he was ordained had happened. What he had ordained to happen for For a long time before that, God will not be boxed up. He's only beholden to Himself and His own Word, and He's not going to be manipulated, and He certainly wasn't defeated. He showed His power in this event, His great power in this ordained judgment against Eli and his house. Both sons did die on the same day. And the nation was disciplined as well. John Owen talks a lot about discipline and different kinds of discipline and judgment. I thought this was fairly succinct and special. He writes, temporal judgments are of two sorts. They're either a warning of God's displeasure or they're actual punishments. And you'll see both of these in your lives. What are the warnings? They might come in signs in the heavens and in the earth beneath. Things that shouldn't be despised. Our Savior warned us to look for them before the great end of the world. The warning might be that God makes a nation thin of persons that are honorable, counselors, wise. They should be the stay in the staff of a nation and they become rare. Thirdly, a warning might be strange and unaccountable differences and divisions in the minds and affections of men so that they are ready to fight with their neighbors. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Fourth warning. The warnings of God are often given to make us base and dishonorable. Sorry, warnings God has given us often make us base and dishonorable. These are God's warnings. But there are actual judgments and punishments Plague, fire, sword, distress, and poverty that come upon a nation enough to make the hearts of men tremble. So the whole nation of Israel was brought to their knees. This discipline was for Eli, but it was also for the people of God. And interestingly, there's a play on words here. Note that Eli was glory or Eli was heavy. It's the same exact word, heavy and glory, same word. 
So the author's playing on this word, and he's saying that because Eli, rather than showing forth the glory of God, he indulged himself. He wasn't heavy with God's glory. He was just heavy in indulgence. And it was part of the reason why his neck snapped in two. He should have been lifting up God's glory, displaying God's glory. And this was the great blasphemy. And then, in conclusion, Phineas. Phineas probably never spoke anything memorable and truthful of God, but his wife did. When she died, she named her son Ichabod and said, The glory has departed from Israel. And she was correct, but not because the ark had been captured and the priests of God had died. The glory departed from Israel long before that. And because of that, the ark was captured and the priests were killed. And all future worship of Yahweh seemed impossible. The priests were dead. Eli was dead. What's left? There's just this boy, Samuel. There's not even an ark. It seems impossible. All future worship seemed to come to an end. But it's never, ever the end. Close with this illustration before we take the Lord's Supper. There was a chess painting that was in the Louvre, the big French art gallery, and it was called Checkmate. And here's the picture. It's a painting, a large painting, and there's a a man playing chess. And on one side you see Satan. Satan is playing chess with a man. And the man looks like the loser. He looks sad. I mean, you can look this painting up when you get home. He does look sad. He looks like he's defeated. And Satan is holding the final piece. And he's looking like the victorious winner of the chess match. Well, in chess, of course, it's not over until the king is defeated. And when you call checkmates, the king has nowhere else to go. He's going to die. So this painting was in the Louvre and a master, a chess master was in the Louvre as well. And he was walking around and he saw this painting and because he loved chess, he walked right up to it and just stared at it. And his friend said, let's go walk around. He said, no, I want to stare at this painting for a while. So he begins just looking at the painting. And of course, he's looking at the pieces because that's his life. His life is chess. And the typical interpretation of this painting was that the devil had the guy in checkmate. The devil won. And what the chess master noted was that the painter actually knew something about God. The devil who seemed the obvious victor was in fact not the winner. Why? In the picture, the king had one more move. And it was a victorious move. You see, the king always has one more move. Our king always comes out victorious. We feel like we're defeated. We feel like the man in the painting. We feel like the Israelites when our armies have been scattered. It feels like checkmate. But the reality is God always has a plan. And our king always has another move. Even on the cross, our king knew exactly what he was doing. This brings us to a time of the Lord's Supper.